Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Situated northwest of downtown Los Angeles and covering around 80 square kilometers, Hollywood is a far cry from the community envisioned by its founding family. The district was first settled by Harvey Wilcox, a former shoemaker from New York via Kansas, and his wife Deidre. The couple planned to set up a ranch on the land, but soon found they had no aptitude for ranching. Their plan B, to build a community based around their moral outlook. Harvey was heavily religious and a prohibitionist, so determined Hollywood would become a Christian settlement, free of the temptations of alcohol, gambling, and prostitution. He died in 1891, only four years into the establishment of Tinseltown. Data Wilcox Beveridge took the reins following her husband's passing. She picked up approximately where Harvey left off, announcing free land to anyone who set up a church in Hollywood. All denominations were welcome. Data was devoutly religious, like Harvey. But at 30 years his junior, she had a very different view of what it meant to be God-fearing. She wanted to make Hollywood a place of beauty she dreamt of a cultured town where cultured people mingled at the theatre. The kind of place where young lovers might meet at a barn dance. The kind of place where those young lovers might want to find work, marry, settle down, and bring up their own families. One early settler to this upscale neighbourhood, H.J. Whitley, was instrumental in helping Deidre build Hollywood. In 1902, Whitley brought a bank to Tinseltown. Whitley secured electricity in a post office. With Data, he set up a hotel, a market, and Hollywood Boulevard. Data passed on in 1914, a few years after the first movie studios arrived in Tinseltown, but nearly a decade before the famous Hollywoodland sign went up. The people of Hollywood honored her in death as the Mother of Hollywood. The first Hollywood movie scene was shot in 1908. Directors Thomas Persons and Francis Boggs filmed most of The Count of Monte Cristo in Chicago. Disruptions in shooting led to a relocation to Hollywood. The first film shot there entirely was In Old California, a 1910 western directed by D.W. Griffith. More productions followed in 1911. And by the early 19-teens, 20 production companies were operating in Hollywood. A large number of sunny days each year meant more filming days than back east. It also made for great light to film in. At a diverse landscape and a rapidly growing population to draw from, California was a rising agricultural and industrial area full of people looking for work and Tinseltown was the ideal place to shoot a movie. The late 19-teens up until the Great Depression was a time when many people could afford nice things, including distractions from everyday lives. 
An emergent film industry focused on narrative-driven filmmaking, filling a need for escapism for many Americans. This was a boom time for movie makers, but one could imagine the ghost of Harvey Wilcox turning in his grave, figuratively speaking. A booming industry flush with cash and full of talented, young, well-paid people. Rumours soon got out about how decadent Hollywood had become. And of course, sober, religious wowsers, people much like Harvey Wilcox, continued to exist. They were riding high on their recent victory against the demon drink. In 1919, the government passed the 18th Amendment, banning the recreational use of alcohol. The amendment got teeth soon after, with the passing of the Volstead Act, 28th of October 1919. These killjoys had a new target in their sights. Those decadent and, dare I say it, as anti-Semitism was part of the reason they were targeted, often Jewish filmmakers out in Hollywood. By 1930, the industry would voluntarily bind itself to a set of standards. The Motion Picture Production Code, or the Hayes Code as it was informally known. Will Hayes, a former Postmaster General, briefly associated with the incredibly corrupt presidency of William Harding in the early 1920s, was put in charge. For decades, this would have a detrimental effect on the movie industry and long-lasting effects on society as a whole. Conservative values making it past the censor far easier than progressive values. Two examples. Under Hayes Code America, couples of differing ethnicities were barred. A lack of representation normalizing mixed-race relationships made it easier for racist lawmakers to continue to enforce real-world miscegenation laws. The rule also made for ridiculous situations on film, now seen, rightly, as offensive. Take Anna Mae Wong. America's greatest Chinese-American actor was passed over for a role in the 1935 blockbuster The Good Earth, a film about the trials and tribulations of a Chinese family, because MGM had already cast the white Paul Mooney in the male lead. They would rather have both leads in yellowface than break miscegenation laws by casting a real Chinese and a fake Chinese actor opposite one another. German-American actress Louise Rayner won an Oscar for her portrayal of the housewife Olan. Something Anna May never really got over. The LGBTQI community were also relegated to characters whose essential nature could only be alluded to in a coded way. Under the Hayes Code, they were often sinners, baddies, or lunatics, and as such had to be punished by the end of the film. This was a far cry from, for example, Wings, the 1927 film which won the first Oscar for Best Picture. The film's protagonists were two male pilots who vie for the love of the same woman, but who slowly come to realize that they really love one another. The film reaches a climax after Dave, one of the pilots, is gravely injured. Unrequited lover Jack rushes to his side, 
and the two share their true feelings for one another. Then, a passionate kiss, before Dave passes of his injuries. Well, the barrier gaze trope will continue well after the Hayes Code, of course. But love in its great diversity would be left on the cutting room floor for decades. So how did Hollywood find itself in such an awful and restrictive state? Well, there were a series of high-profile scandals that made moral policing seem unavoidable. Over the next three episodes, Tales of History and Imagination goes Hollywood, as we delve into three of those scandals. As we need to start somewhere, let's begin in the early hours of September 6th, 1920. The location? Paris's legendary Hotel Ritz, popular among the rich and famous for its luxuriousness, including being among the first hotels anywhere to have electric lights, telephones in all the rooms, and, pertinent to our tale, an ensuite bathroom in every suite. Among the guests that evening, Hollywood actors Olive Thomas and Jack Pickford. The night before, the couple took in Paris's vivid nightlife. The couple imbibed freely, and one presumes partied hard well into the morning. They returned to their suite, the worse for wear, around 3am on the 6th. As the couple had a flight booked for London that morning, Jack went straight to bed. Olive was not yet ready to turn in, and took a seat to jot down a letter to her mother in the USA. She wrote until Jack shouted at her to turn the light off and come to bed. She turned off the light and fumbled through the dark to the bathroom. Seconds later, Jack claimed Olive shrieked, Oh my God, before collapsing as if struck dead. What would unfold would go down in the annals of Tinseltown as its first great scandal. Sadly, it also proved an early example of how tragedy sells. But before we jump into that, I should really introduce the cast. First, to our heroine. Olive Thomas was born Olivia Duffy in Charleroi, Pennsylvania, October 20th, 1894. When she was aged 12, Olive was sent to live with her grandparents, after her father, James, was killed in a workplace accident. She left school, aged 15, finding work selling gingham in a department store. In April 1911, she married Bernard Thomas, a train station clerk, but by the age of 18, she'd left Bernard having moved to New York in search of fame and fortune. She made a first big break in 1914 when she won a beauty contest. Over the following years, Olive the Beauty Queen parlayed her win into a lucrative entertainment career. She took work as an artist's model, featuring in a number of magazine advertisements. This in turn led to a role in the Ziegfeld Follies a flashy Broadway dance review which ran from 1907 to 1931, then intermittently after, that was modelled on Paris's Folies Bergère by Florence Ziegfeld Jr. She caught the eye of the impresario and soon the two were an item. By all accounts, she was no great dancer, but Olive was extremely good looking. People commented particularly about her violet blue eyes which I can only imagine is similar in colour to Elizabeth Taylor's. But she was also dating the guy in charge, so her profile within the troupe grew. 
until she caught the attention of the movie people. By 1916, Olive Thomas was cast in small roles in films. In 1917, she caught the eye of Triangle Pictures film producer and innovator Thomas Ince. Olive signed up to a six-year contract with Triangle Pictures in 1917 and quickly became popular with the film-going public for her innocent girl-next-door characters. Not meaning to cast shade on Ms. Thomas, but real life was anything but girl-next-door. In truth, she was far more interesting than all that. In 1916, while still involved with Ziegfeld, she met and fell in love with Jack Pickford, the only son of the Pickford acting family. Mary Pickford, his older sister, was as much an A-lister as one could be in those days. A film star since seven years of age, Mary was known as America's sweetheart. She'd go on to win an Oscar, found Pickford Fairbanks Studios with a second husband, Douglas Fairbanks, and then become a founding member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Jack himself was a popular working actor playing boy-next-door types, although nowhere near as famous as his sister. Olive and Jack secretly eloped in 1916. Jack and Olive were both heavy partiers, Jack especially was a very heavy drinker, and according to Hollywood Babylon's Kenneth Anger, reputedly a heroin addict. He was also far from monogamous. There was a buzz around those in the know in Hollywood. He contracted syphilis from a one-night stand while partying. This earned him the nickname Mr. Syphilis among his friends. There wouldn't be an effective cure for syphilis till a U.S. Marine hospital trialed penicillin in 1943. So Mr. Syphilis would only have treatments like mercury bichloride ointments to fall back on. This effectively meant burning off syphilis sores as they arose. Post-elopement, Olive continued her career. She was popular, although never an A-lister. She had a string of moderately successful films of Triangle, before leaving for Selznick Pictures in 1919. Early in 1920, she played the lead in The Flapper, a film which lent its name to the carefree party girls of the Roaring Twenties, although her own role in the film was not terribly flapperish. She was signed up to an eight-picture-a-year deal with Selznick, and it appears something may have happened there in the lead-up to her French holiday. Now, I've yet to come across a detailed explanation and any explanation by myself would be guesswork. But by the time Olive and Jack set sail in August 1920, Olive had been removed from Selznick's payroll. Jack continued to party hard following their marriage, but nearly brought himself into disrepute in a different way entirely in 1918. As the First World War ground towards a conclusion, Jack, a Canadian-born Canadian citizen, volunteered for the American Navy to avoid being drafted into Canada's armed forces and sent off to war. A number of sons of wealthy Americans, some of whom were Jack's drinking buddies, had been signing up for the Navy as they had a high-ranking connection who would ensure they were not sent to war, and was accepting hefty bribes in return. Jack was among those caught, named and shamed in the press. 
He avoided a dishonorable discharge or criminal indictment, but his own image and the good name of the Pickfords was tarnished because of this. He continued to work sporadically, picking up one or two roles a year following the scandal. So, back to Verrits. September 6, 1920. Oliver's collapsed in the ensuite. A bottle of poison lays on the floor beside her. Jack calls for a doctor and proceeds to force water and egg whites down Olive's rapidly corroding gullet, hoping she will vomit the dangerous substance from her body. It's not known if she took a tablet of Jack's ointment thinking she grabbed a painkiller or a sleeping pill, or if she'd washed a painkiller or a sleeping pill down with what she thought was a glass of drinking water, instead imbibing a glass of Jack's diluted medicine. Mary Pickford, trying to avoid further damage to Brand Pickford, later claimed an errant maid must have left poison behind after cleaning the bathroom. A doctor arrived and pumped Olive's stomach three times. She would not be taken to hospital till five hours after she collapsed. At this stage, it was too little too late. Olive Thomas died of her injuries, 10th of September, 1920. Concerned Olive's death would damage her own reputation. The Pickford sprang into damage control mode. The day Olive passed, Mary's recently divorced ex-husband, Owen Moore, fronted up to press. He claimed Olive had been extremely unwell for some time and died of natural causes. No specific details of her alleged sickness were shared with the press, but the family's wish for privacy to mourn their loss most definitely was. And unsurprisingly, this only urged the press to muckrake for whatever they could find. Stories emerged of Olive's last night of Parisian debauchery. Did Olive and Jack go to a nice restaurant and from there out dancing? Or were they hanging out in shadowy opium dens? Did they go sightseeing or were they hanging out with career criminals at fight clubs? Where they bet on female bare-knuckle boxers? as men bit the heads off live rats. Did Olive drink bootleg rocket fuel that night that contained toxic levels of ethanol? This line of a couple hitting seedy clubs run in defiance of police regulations, as one Ohio newspaper put it, dominated a number of newspapers. And one can imagine the pearl clutching back in the USA. Sure that Pickford kid is a bad one, but Olive Thomas? She was the girl next door, right? And then there was the case of a Captain Spaulding. An American former army captain named Spaulding was sentenced to six months prison at Lasante Prison in the week following Olive's death. His crime? He was caught smuggling cocaine into France. Rumours abounded of his Captain Spaulding organising cocaine-fueled orgies for wealthy Americans. A rumour did the round, Spaulding had a little black book of clients, and Olive's details were in it. If this Captain Spaulding did in fact know Olive, he was unlikely to have had anything to do with her death. A newspaper article ran on the man on the day of Olive's death, covering his capture and trial, ongoing at the time. But it was cause for speculation. Cocaine was wildly popular among the rich and famous in the 1920s. Coincidentally, it was claimed the American film studio, Famous Players Lasky, 
had a dealer known as Captain Spaulding, who provided the actors with cocaine whenever they needed it. Something some Hollywood history bloggers claim Groucho Marx was tipping his hat to and naming his character in the movie Animal Crackers in 1931, Captain Jeffrey Spaulding. Rumours well preceded any sensible examination of facts, and for some, they stuck. The rumours of Jack Syphilis also emerged in the days following Olive's death. Scuttlebutt circulated Olive had contracted syphilis from Jack, and despondent to what was almost certainly a death sentence, chose to take her own life. This was the narrative that stuck most with the public. People started to blame Jack for her death. Hot on the heels of this scandal, another rumour, had Jack taken a life insurance policy out on Olive? Was he a callous murderer? Could this explain why Jack avoided police questioning in the wake of Olive's passing? This certainly wasn't helped when Jack Pickford remarried to a young Hollywood widow and star of Broadway named Marilyn Miller. It probably should be noted the couple divorced after five years due to Jack being an abusive husband. Public opinion fell behind Olive. She was the wholesome girl next door, led astray by a Hollywood aristocrat, whose crimes included draft dodging, sleeping around, heavy drug use, and quite possibly, murder. One could imagine Jack Pickford's Hollywood career as the boy next door was as good as over. 15,000 mourners gathered outside Olive's funeral, and people clamored to go see her old films which were all being re-released at cinemas across America, all became blockbusters in the weeks following her death. Now another sector of the public, the Wowsers who killed alcohol, took notice too, and their take was quite different. Olive Thomas was not their focus. The alleged Parisian Bacchanalia was. This only served to confirm their belief that Hollywood was a den of inequity hell-bent on corrupting American society. To them, Olive Thomas was a cautionary tale. And, for now, Jack Pickford was the devil incarnate. Now, I generally don't want to speculate on any of these three cases. At a push, the accident scenario seems more likely to me. But the case lacks evidence, and has become bloated with wild speculation. Was Jack an abusive husband? Well, subsequently, yes, it appears so. Did he take out a policy on his wife and then intentionally poison her? Well, no evidence has been presented of this. Did Jack Pickford take syphilis medication? There is some evidence for this. And as a coda to this tale, Jack Pickford returned to Paris in late 1932 for a shopping holiday. While there, he collapsed and died a few days later, on January 3rd, 1933. His cause of death is listed as progressive multiple neuritis which attacked all the nerve centers. Alcoholism, and it should be pointed out, Marilyn Miller claimed Jack was an alcoholic in her divorce petition, can cause neuritis. Syphilis was a common cause of neuritis also, so who knows? Now to me, more than a century after, Olive Thomas's case is doubly tragic. First for her early passing, and secondly because she became fodder in a culture war. Next fortnight's episode, the Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle Virginia Rappe case, 
is similarly ambiguous, but in my opinion, altogether more disturbing. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.